Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, where we're working to drive positive change through collective action in science and technology. This is the second episode in a six-part miniseries called The Physics of Everything, in which we're presenting long-form conversations from a series of events at the Academy sponsored by the John Templeton Foundation. The idea behind these events is to get serious world-class thinkers to talk about what we know and don't know in physics, which you could call humanity's current state of understanding of the workings of the universe. And to talk about it in such a way that anyone, scientists in other fields or just scientifically curious people of any background, can understand and join in. Now, for the second of these conversations, the topic is one that someone not trained as a physicist is bound to run up against if and when they try to wrap their heads around some of the big theories that blew physics apart in the 20th century. First relativity, and then quantum mechanics and its many children, like string theory. And it has to do with some very fundamental questions about what science actually is and can be, or maybe even should be. Now, we all learned in middle school about the scientific method, that the way you do science is to go out in the world and make physical observations, then formulate a hypothesis based on those observations, then design an experiment to test that hypothesis. It's a strict, methodical process, and it's based entirely on observation, accumulating quantifiable data. But in physics, especially in the very small physics of microscopic particles, scientists are often dealing with hypotheses that cannot be experimentally tested in the traditional sense of the world. Theories about particles or subparticles so small that they can't be directly observed in any meaningful way. And so this begs the question, is this world of thought experiments still science? Or is it something else? Something closer to philosophy? The comparison between theoretical physics and philosophy is one that some scientists wholeheartedly embrace, even as it might serve to delegitimize their work in some way, and some others aggressively reject, even as the parallels and overlaps are hard to ignore. And so this sounds like the makings of a really good conversation, which we held at the Academy on April 25th, 2016, at an event called Where Do Physics and Philosophy Intersect? Our moderator was the science writer Kate Becker. She holds an MS in astronomy from Cornell and developed K-12 educational programs for the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado. She was also a senior researcher on the legendary TV series Nova, and now she's a columnist for the Boulder, Colorado Daily Camera. I'll let her introduce the rest of the panel as they each give some introductory remarks. Thank you everyone for being here tonight. I'm really looking forward to an exciting discussion. So physics and philosophy are two different ways of taking on the very deepest questions about our universe and our place in it. But even though the questions may be the same, the toolkits that these fields use to answer them are very different. And there are few thinkers in the world that feel at home on both sides of this fence. Um, we're very lucky to have three of those thinkers with us tonight, um, and I'm happy to introduce them to you. Jim Holt, he's an essayist and author who has written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The New York Review of Books, and many others. There's a quote that I would like to share with you um, from Vanity Fair which has called him an invaluable fixture in the most sophisticated conversations about philosophy, physics, mathematics, and theology, which 
sets the bar pretty high for all of us tonight. That's true, too. <laughs> <laughs> He's taught mathematics at the University of Virginia, philosophy at Columbia, and economics at the City University of New York. And he is not afraid to take on the biggest questions of all, as you can tell from the title of his latest book, Why Does the World Exist?, which has been translated into 18 languages and is a bestseller. And I don't want to give away too much of the ending here, but um, here's what Jim had to say in a 2014 TED Talk about the answer to this big question. Existence is basically random, and reality is, I think this is quite lovely, like champagne frothing out of the bottle endlessly, a vast universe with small pockets of charm and peace. And I'd like to start out with a question for Jim, which I think will kind of set the stage for the rest of our discussion tonight. So we're here today to talk about how physics and philosophy represent very different ways of thinking about the world and some of the different conclusions that they lead us to. But physics and philosophy has not always been separate fields. So can you talk us through some of the history here? Tell us about their common origin and how did they come to be two separate entities? Yeah, well, the earliest philosophers were the pre-Socratics, uh, you know, Athales and Eratosthenes and, uh, and Democritus and so forth. And they began by asking the question, what is the world made of? Um, which sounds like a naive, kind of childish question. In fact, it's one of the, you know, the greatest questions humanity's ever posed because it's led to the creation of science. Uh, and they, the atomists, uh, you know, Democritus, uh, uh, for most among them, came up with a pretty interesting scheme of how reality was as, as it is in itself. And it was atoms in the void. And this became the picture of material reality that sort of persisted through the 19th century into Victorian materialism. That was, the, you know, Greek atomism uh, brought up to the Victorian age. So um, another, uh, another milestone, I would say, was when uh, Newton formulated his laws of motion. And in doing so, he made the physical realm a closed realm and eliminated the possibility of the mind influencing matter. So this gave rise to the mind-body problem. Uh, the 20, in the 20th century, a real surprise. After physics thought that it, you know, it aspired to a picture of the way the world is as it exists in itself apart from our, our observations, then lo and behold, the quantum revolution occurred. And suddenly, it seems as though our observations, in some part, create reality. And quantum theory is a theory not of the world as it is in itself, but of the world as experienced. So this is a sort of you know, paradise lost, the possibility of telling us what reality is as it is in itself. You know, the God's eye view, no, it depends on our interaction with reality. And then finally, just to bring us up to the present, uh, notoriously, you hear many famous physicists today saying that uh, philosophy is dead, it's useless. So, but now we have a physicist who profess to have no interest in philosophy actually doing quite a lot of philosophy, often without knowing it. For instance, uh, Steven Weinberg, the father of the standard uh, uh, model of particle physics, you know, perhaps the most distinguished living physicist in a, in a book he wrote about uh, 10 years ago had a chapter called Against Philosophy, where he said, I've never had any useful guidance from philosophy. It's basically a lot of mischievous nonsense. And here's an example, positivism. Positivism is a philosophical idea that our physical theories have to refer always to observable things. It's a really uh, evil, uh, uh, dangerous preconception. So that's interesting, uh, because Stephen Hawking, another rather well-known physicist, proudly calls himself a positivist. 
Okay? Uh, so they seem to have a philosophical disagreement. Um, and Stephen Hawking's positivism uh, has actual uh, practical implications for the way he pursues physics. Since he's a positivist, th since he's only concerned about, he's not concerned about the way reality is as is it in itself, but about physics as, a, as simply a gadget for predicting the results of experiments, he doesn't care so much about making sense of quantum mechanics. Now his friend Roger Penrose proudly proclaims himself a Platonist. Uh, because he believes, like Plato did, that mathematical ideas exist eternally and they sort of, they're so rich they spill over into the physical world we see around us. Uh, since Penrose is not a positivist, he's a realist, he wants to understand how quantum mechanics works apart from our, our observations. So he says we have to have a physical theory of how the wave function collapses when we make an observation. Hawking doesn't think this is necessary. Here is a really important philosophical difference. Um, so my, and then uh, later on, we'll get into uh, uh, famous physicists who sound like they've been you know, uh, taking bong hits or eating lotus leaves, who talk about, we actually create the universe, that consciousness is the central jewel of the universe, uh, that uh, by looking back on the Big Bang, we make the Big Bang real. These are all ideas associated with John Archibald Wheeler, who was uh, the uh, teacher of Richard Feynman and the coiner of the term black hole. Um, so, Physicists, whether they realize it or not, are doing a lot of philosophy. They have philosophical disagreements. The question is, are they doing it well or poorly, and can philosophers help? And because philosophers are well-trained in, in reasoning very precisely and rigorously and detecting hidden assumptions and so forth, they actually can be useful. So let's, let's take a minute to talk about some of the wedges that have kind of been driven between physics and philosophy. And Jim, you spoke to some of those. I'd like to talk a little bit more about time. Um, and I'm going to ask David to speak about that for us. So in the center of our panel, we have David Z. Albert. He is the Frederick E. Woodbridge Professor of Philosophy at Columbia. He received his PhD in theoretical physics from the Rockefeller University. And since then, he's taught in both physics and philosophy departments around the country and around the world. He's especially interested in issues at the foundations of quantum mechanics and on the fundamental questions about the direction of time. He's also written three books, Quantum Mechanics and Experience, Time and Chance, and After Physics. And he points out that even though he's found his academic home in a philosophy department, all of his formal training is in physics, which leaves us to believe maybe he picked up the philosophy on the street. But he'll tell <laughs> us more about that tonight. We're all sitting here in this room. We have a sense that time is flowing forward, that we're only permitted to travel one way in this river of time. Um, but that isn't necessarily the way that physicists think about it, right? Um, can you tell us a little bit about how physicists think about time? How do philosophers think about it? And where do they disagree? And how can we try to make well, sense of that? I, I, I'm not sure that this is a disagreement between physicists as a body and philosophers as a body. Um, probably more a disagreement within, well, in certain ways within both disciplines. But it's certainly true that you know, you might say one of the sort of founding gestures of physical science in the work of people like Galileo and Newton um, at the time of the scientific revolution was something that's since come to be referred to as the spatialization of time. And what they mean by that, um, what people mean by that is that from the beginning in physics, 
time was treated as a parameter, as a fourth component in the address of an event. You want to completely describe how an event is situated in the world. You give its x-coordinate, you give its y-coordinate, you give its z-coordinate, and you give its t-coordinate. And, and what physics aspired to once it was set up that way, and in some sense all it aspired to, was an account of how events and what kinds of events are distributed in what sorts of ways um, over this four-dimensional x, y, z, t uh, uh, manifold. And it has been the case from the beginning, and this is a, this is a current one finds in a lot of what's referred to nowadays as continental philosophy, that by this gesture of spatialization, physics, you know, from its founding moment, sort of cut itself off from the possibility of confronting what was really interesting about the temporal at all. Um, um, that it cut itself off, you know, it, it invented a language in which talk about passage or flow or anything like that was just going to come out as meaningless gibberish. And, and, uh, uh, and in that way, and, and you know, there's, a, there's an experience of the temporal that philosophers like Bergson and Heidegger and Deleuze and people like this talk about, which they claim physics had been set up in such a way as, as to make such discussions impossible, as I said, to appear as anything other than, than meaningless gibberish. On the other hand, you know, th this is, uh, so that's the sort of glass half empty way to think about it. Um, there's another way to think about this, that this poses a really interesting challenge for physics, that there is um, a phenomenology of passage, of flow involved with our experience of time, that there are all sorts of ways in which our experience of the temporal coordinate is very, very different from our experience of the spatial coordinates. And if on some fundamental metaphysical level there isn't supposed to be that kind of distinction between them. Physics needs to give an account of how the particular way that mass and energy is distributed over this thing somehow gives rise to this kind of phenomenology. Hans Halverson, give a little wave. <laughs> Hans is a professor of, of uh, philosophy at Princeton University. Hans describes his own work as living at the intersection of mathematics, physics, and philosophy, and includes quantum field theory, quantum information theory, category theory, and the philosophy of science. And it sometimes seems that kind of the deeper we get into contemporary physics, the more divorced it becomes from our everyday experience. So we see that in time, and we see that in these various bizarre aspects of quantum theory. Things can be a particle and a wave at the same time. Things can be apparently in more than one place at a single time. Um, we have some kind of communication that seems to happen faster than the speed of light. Um, can philosophers try to help us make sense of the very strangeness um, of quantum theory? Well, so yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot to say about this. There is, um, I mean, I think Jim raised the sort of really important point here. There are various levels of strangeness. I don't know who, Jim might know who this quote is from. There, there, there's a nice um, um, saying from, you know, lost in the mists of, of history somewhere where 
where some people said about quantum mechanics, you know, the funny thing about it is not, it, it, it's not merely that it may be telling us that the world is stranger than we know, but that it's stranger than we can know. And, uh, uh, and there was a lore that Jim referred to for a long time that there was a certain very fundamental aspiration of the physical project um, um, in the West to achieve some kind of understanding of the world as a separate, real, freestanding object who ha which had the properties that it had completely independent of whether anybody was thinking about it or whether anybody was looking at it or something like that. Of course, nobody ever doubted that looking was some kind of physical interaction, but, but, the, uh, but, but there, was a, you know, there was this aspiration to be able to develop um, a, a, a straightforwardly, flat-footedly realistic story about the whole thing. And we have been through now something on the order of a century, um, during most of which it was thought that quantum mechanics had exposed aspirations like that as naive, as presumptuous, um, and at any rate as false. And um, it's only recently, and I think this is something that philosophers have played a considerable role in, it's only recently that those arguments, which trace back to people like Bohr uh, especially, have themselves been exposed as too quick um, um, and as um, in a certain way presumptuous. And, and uh, you know, philosophers were much more reluctant than physicists were to to simply think that it was easy to understand what it would even mean to have outgrown the thought that there was a world out there um, that had properties independent of whether we were thinking about it or whether we were looking at it. So I think a development that's been really important over the past 20 years or so, and this is a development that philosophers have played an important role in, precisely for the reasons that Jim outlined, is that these conclusions were actually reached a good deal too fast, um, that the original aspiration of producing uh, an understandable, realistic account of what was going on rather than just a prescription for predicting the outcomes of experiments is now widely considered much more alive and well um, than it had been throughout most of the previous century. It's, you know, it's interesting that um, physicists are much more willing to talk about consciousness as an integral part of uh, physical processes in the, in the description of the uh, of physical reality. And philosophers are, tend to be much more hard-headed about this, which is uh, ironic. Uh, so there's been a sort of a flipping around. In the uh, 19th century, uh, European philosophy was, was idealistic in the sense that it was believed that the world was fundamentally consisted of, of mind stuff or was made by the mind. Uh, this is an idea that I think contemporary philosophers don't really take seriously. But physicists uh, often talk as though that is the case. So philosophers are, are, tend to be much more you know, realistic in the metaphysical sense and physicists idealistic, which is uh, an irony. Thank you.
<laughs> okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the multiverse. Um, and I'd like to hear some, some of Han's thoughts here. So physicists have been following many different lines of reasoning from quantum mechanics to string theory to inflationary cosmology um, to arrive at the conclusion that our universe might be just one of many, maybe even infinitely many, um, which can be a really appealing story um, on a lot of different levels. But the problem is that some of these multiverses, if not all of them, seem to be very difficult to test experimentally. So is this science um, if we can't test it experimentally? Um, or is it something else? And if it's something else, what is it? So I think that is something where there has also been good developments among philosophers because in the early 20th century, you actually also did find, so, so as David was mentioning, with scientists like Bohr who thought, we have to rethink the task of science. Science is no longer trying to describe an objective external world. You also had scientists saying, well, in fact, what, what science tries to do is it just tries to organize the phenomena, the data, and all this theoretical stuff that does the predicting is just a tool, right? So you don't actually believe that it describes the world. You just believe it's like a, a black box, and you turn the crank, and it makes predictions. So it becomes a purely utilitarian view of the task of science. And actually, I, I think it was through a lot of philosophical discussion where people realized that that, that view in, in a lot of ways just undermines itself. And so philosophers were very instrumental, I think, in saying the task of science can't be put so simply. We can't just say the task of science is only to say things that can be verified. So it has to be something else. And I think what, what else it can be, because I think still, I, I mean, some people, of course, rush to the opposite extreme. You know, certainly we, we live in a culture where Science has a power to give us a myth, so to speak, to live by, you know, a story that we take is telling us who we are. But I think also many of us have worries about, you know, what are the constraints on that, right? So it shouldn't just be, so science should be different than the way our ancestors told these stories, which was much less tied to empirical data. So we were, there was a much greater risk of being wrong. So the question is, what is this tie to empirical data? So, so the multiverse, I think when I look at it, you know, there's, there's one extreme where it's just sort of a story that, that fills pages of books and sounds interesting and exotic. And if it brings kids to do science, that's great. But the fact is it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have the taste of real science because real science does involve prediction, calculation, description that rises above the level of ordinary sort of, you know, here it might be like this. This is my opinion. That's your opinion or whatever. Of course, the opposite extreme, you know, is again, I think we don't want to fall back into the idea that, well, it's, you know, you can't verify this because that's, that's not very clear. First of all, it's not very clear that it will stay that way forever. It's not very clear that it's not verifiable in principle. But also physics is a very sophisticated enterprise. So the thing is, it, you know, sometimes you have an equation that's very useful at making predictions, but the equation then spits out stuff that surprises you. So an example here is, say, Einstein's field equations for general relativity. So Einstein comes up with these equations to describe known phenomena. And then later in the century, people solve these equations and find things that Einstein never would have imagined. So I think the same is true with the multiverse in the sense that sometimes physicists are just doing what they do. And they're not trying to you know, say there's a multiverse. They're looking at the equations they have, trying to make sense of the data they have. And they're surprised. And that, I think, we can only say is good science. And then we have to take it very seriously. And just to amplify what Hans said, in, in the latter kind of case that, that he's describing, it is you, you, the, the multiverse, I think, often gets accused a little too quickly uh, of, of being something unverifiable and so on and so forth. It may be beyond our, uh, it, it may be in some principled way 
not possible to say directly look at the other universes, but as Hans was, was gesturing towards, um, that doesn't mean that these theories might have, that doesn't mean that we might come to have good empirical reasons of all sorts of other kinds to believe these theories, that they make all sorts of other predictions that do have observable consequences that turn out to be true, that increase our confidence that these theories are true in general. And if something like that happens, then it doesn't seem a departure from sort of traditional scientific standards of confirmation to say, look, because the theory has done so well in so many areas, we're inclined to have high confidence in it, and we're inclined to have confidence that, that various of the other claims it makes about the existence of other universes or something like that um, um, turn out to be true as well. But the, the danger with the multiverse, that the, there, there's a lot of skepticism, uh, certainly among physicists, about multiverse models because even if they are, uh, they, they do have implications that could be confirmed in our little region of reality, like the uh, uh, inflationary multiverse uh, theories uh, comport pretty well with the, uh, the inhomogeneities and the cosmic uh, background radiation. That's the, you know, the, the radiation that's left over from the Big Bang. And it's almost uniform, but not completely uniform. There are little variations in it. And the inflationary uh, theories of cosmology, which, which, uh, some of which predict a multiverse, an, uh, an eternal multiverse, in which big banks are going off, off uh, constantly uh, and creating uh, new pocket universes, that this, uh, these theories actually uh, are in good empirical uh, agreement with the uh, uh, cosmic uh, uh, microwave background radiation. Okay. But once you have a multiverse, and if the different universes have different physical features, different particle spectra, different coupling constants and fundamental features, different numbers of dimensions and so forth, suddenly the ability of physics to predict things is greatly eroded because things that look like they're fundamental parts of our universe, the constants that define the standard model, for example, become like you know contingent, like local weather. They vary randomly throughout the multiverse, and the fact that the universe we're living in seems uh, uh, fine-tuned to, uh, rather improbably fine-tuned to permit the uh, emergence of uh, intelligent life forms, uh, it, it, you know, has a, an explanation that's akin to the explanation: Why are we living on? You know, why is the Earth so nice to live on? And you know, uh, is it is it especially planned for us? No, it's just it's one part of the uh, the uh, this much vaster, largely uninhabitable universe, uh, and we're here because it's the only place where we could be. So I'm not I'm sort of losing my thread here, but the the point is that with the multiverse, the whole nature of scientific explanation, uh, of, you know, of predicting fundamental features of the universe, you know, the observable universe that we live in is suddenly lost. And a lot of physicists feel that that's a cheap way of explaining too much. Uh, and it's not, you know, it, it, it's not in the best tradition of science. Yeah, so it, it seems that part of the question that physicists and philosophers are grappling with is which questions are worth answering. You know, is it worth asking why our universe is the way it is? Or do we just say, eh, it is, so it's not, it's not worth I'm trying to figure out why. How can 
excuse me, how can philosophers try to help physicists figure out what questions are worth their time? <laughs> I, I, actually, I, I mean, I guess I would say I, think, I don't think many philosophers would feel really they have any position in telling physicists what questions are, because usually physicists are really quite good at surprising us with being able to answer questions we might think they couldn't answer. Um, so I think what philosophers can sometimes do is if, if a physicist raises a question, you could say something like, you know, what philosophers tend to do and say, what do you mean by that? Or, you know, or just ask, why are you asking that kind of question? Um, and I think more often than not, it's, it's, you know, philosopher's role is more going to be um, you know, not to sort of try to, to police physics, but to, to try to take what's happening in physics and make sense of it, and do an interpretive job. Uh, although, I mean, I, I think there have been a couple of examples of really important exceptions to a pattern like that. I mean, you know, there was a question, um, um, there was a long history in the 20th century um, of, within theoretical physics, of denying that there was such a question as, for example, why is it that measurements have yeah. determinate outcomes? And, uh, uh, and a lot of work there was done by, you know, there, um, there, there the situation was exactly the reverse of the one you yeah, just yeah, described. Exactly. That is, physicists were not at all surprising us with the range of questions um, that they could answer. They were surprising us um, um, in, a, in a very different way with the narrowness of the questions that they were willing to consider. And, uh, and it took a long time for philosophers, you know, at that point, what, something that was available for people with philosophical training and inclination to do was to, was to formulate very clearly arguments that there was a genuine scientific question here that it wasn't a verbal question, that it wasn't a confusion, um, um, so on and so forth, that there was a very real question, and it was a question which, um, on the traditional conception, on the, on the governing conception of what physics was about, was a question for physics. And there was really an incident there of philosophers having to say very insistently to physicists, this is a question for physics, if you're not aware of it, we're here to tell you um, um, that it is. And, and the insistence on this, I think, was very productive in the long run. And let's, let's talk a little bit more about kind of what philosophers can offer physics when it comes to rigorous ways of thinking about the world. Um, let's start with, with Hans. What do you think that philosophers can give physicists um, as tools for clarifying thought? Well, so, I mean, first of all, I would say basically, I, I don't tend to think of philosophy as like a natural kind, like there is something that is philosophy. I think philosophers have the, the good fortune, those of us who work in philosophy departments, that often we have very interdisciplinary backgrounds and that get, allows us to bring new things to the table. And so, you know, for example, the, the, what David just said is, you know, he, his background allows him to realize there's a question that other people are just passing on by, an important question to ask. I think you know, with my background is a little bit more on the ma mathematical side of physics, and that allowed me to see things like when you know, physicists will use words that we used to use and think they know how they're using them properly, and then you realize actually they don't have the implications we used to think they have. So like in you know, fundamental particle physics, and we, people, people like to you know, throw around the word particle, particle, you know, particles. But the fact is then if you go and look at the theory, actually it doesn't have anything that 
stands uh, that, that bears up to that description. Now, I'm, I'm actually, David will probably come back and, and want to clarify this in a minute because the theory could be deeper than it is. The fact is just the theory as it is now, there's nothing that you could call a particle, really. They're quantum fields, but they're not really particles. Um, so I think, and that, you know, why, do, why would did philosophers have to say something like that? I think it's because you don't need to know things at that fine-grained level to make a good prediction in the laboratory and to get another research grant and so on. But, you know, we had the luxury to sit back, you know, for a couple years and say, oh, I wonder if there really are particles. Let's actually, you know, do an investigation that doesn't involve us going into the lab, just involves us opening the textbook and analyzing what's there already. So I think that's one thing philosophers have to offer, but there I just mean somebody who has interdisciplinary training. Can I just set up one um, fairly well-defined issue that I think turns on, it's of great inf uh, significance within theoretical physics, and it turns on a philosophical distinction. And that is the, uh, one, of the one of the great challenges facing um, theoretical physics is coming up with a theory of qua a quantum theory of gravity. You know, we have two uh, um, uh, two uh, sort of incompatible ways of describing the physical world. One of which is quantum theory, which describes things in the small, and one is uh, relativity theory, which des describes things in the large, uh, crudely speaking. And they um, are not at present. Uh, mathematically consistent. And so one of the great challenges is to come up with a framework for quantum gravity that does you know, unify them so we have a single way of describing physical reality. If such a theory, a consistent theory of quantum gravity is produced, one of its implications will be that there's a particle corresponding to the gravitational, to an excitation of the gravitational field called the graviton. Okay. Um, and that would be the decisive, the detection of the graviton would be the decisive confirmation of quantum gravity. Now, uh, Freeman Dyson, who uh, is uh, probably about 90 years old now and is the, 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 you know, one of the few surviving members of his generation uh, of uh, physics, he was responsible for um, you know, making uh, quantum electrodynamics mathematically consistent, a, a huge achievement. He believes, he's done calculations which suggest that you know, because the gravitational field is so weak compared to the other forces, it, it would be it's very very it would be very very difficult to detect a graviton if a graviton existed. And he thinks he's he, he may have proved that any detector of a graviton would have to be so enormous and so concentrated in its mass that it would automatically collapse into a black hole, which is really interesting. So this is an a priori proof that. It, 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 it's not clear that it's valid, but it could be valid. But it, so let's suppose it is valid. An a priori proof that the graviton, if it exists, is undetectable in principle. So he deduces from that that if it's undetectable in principle, the whole question of quantum gravity is physically meaningless. It's you know to talk about whether the graviton exists or not is meaningless. Therefore, there's no point in pursuing quantum gravity. We should, we should be happy with these two incompatible theories for describing the world. And we'll never, you know, the question of how the universe, in the, you know, the large scale structure of the universe determined by general relativity theory fits together with the small scale structure of the universe as determined by quantum theory is beyond our empirical ken. 
So of course, on this, we'll, we'll never ex we, where they do intersect is you know at the Big Bang and, and the black, and black holes and so forth. So we'll never understand those thoroughly. So you know, and then Steven Weinberg, the the most li distinguished living physicist, said, you know, everyone, you know, we, we've never we'll never detect gravitons possibly, but of course they exist. So you know, this is a philosophical disagreement. If you can't detect something experimentally, is it meaningful to talk about whether it exists or not? And it really, you know, if, if Dyson is right, people are wasting their physicists are wasting their time pursuing a theory of quantum gravity. Um, and so I, you know, and, and I, and when you look at the debate, I mean, this is really terribly important, and it's philosophically very naive. And I wish more philosophers were involved in saying, no, you're. Look, look, Professor Dyson, you're using a notion of physical meaningfulness that we haven't taken seriously you know, in 70 years. Um, now, there have been other moments in the history of physics where physicists believed that they basically had figured out everything they could figure out, right, and that nothing else was going to be empirically provable. How, how did that turn out? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, the, the, the predictions have gotten, you know, with, with each scientific revolution, the predictions get more and more precise. Uh, so there's progress in the sense of converging, we're converging on more and more accurate predictions. But with each scientific revolution, the picture of the universe that we get is completely overthrown. The, the ontology, what exists is, you know, suddenly looks completely different. Uh, the nature of space and time look completely different. The quantum world, the world as described by quantum mechanics, looks nothing like the world of classical mechanics. But the predictions are only, are, you know, are, are, are more accurate. So predictions converge, theoretical pictures wildly diverge. And I think th this is some evidence that ultimately what science is giving us is not a picture of reality as it is in itself. It's, it's giving us a way of predicting our experience um, and you know and if it and if it is giving us a picture of, uh, of reality as it is itself how come we're not making any progress how come instead of convergence we're getting this wild divergence well I don't I mean I so I'm not sure I agree with that as a conclusion um, um, and you yourself described a sense in which we are getting convergence in terms of accuracy of uh, uh, of predictions it's true that that you know, at every level of greater accuracy, it hasn't just been a quantitative change in what we understand, but the world looks completely different at these different stages. Um, um, I, I, it's less than clear to me that that's evidence that, uh, that it's not converging. Um, um, on a true picture, you know there there's so what is the, there, what, there, what, there what is, is a consistent Well, there is a, your picture. I don't know. And, 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 no, no, and, and I may be. What do you mean? So no, David will say if you. <laughs> I, no, no, I think nobody knows how reality is as it is itself, but but David will tell you how it is. And and here here's this picture. It's a the a universal quantum wave function that's sort of wiggling around in a tremendously high dimensional space. That's reality as it is in itself, and the Lebensfeld, the world that we live in, is you know somehow emerges from that. Uh, now I'm, I'm actually I'm caricaturing your position a little bit, but you know when, well the I only character really, the, the only element of caricature is it's it's not what you said isn't accurate unless you add assuming that the quantum picture of things turns out to be turns out to be roughly correct but there's no more reason to assume that at the end of the day than there was to assume that the classical picture of the world um, is ultimately correct um, so that's a claim about that, that that's a claim about 
you know, I don't know what, the best way to think about quantum mechanics. Um, 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 it's not attempting to go beyond that, but there is, I mean, within philosophy, you know, there, there's, a, there's a debate um, for a long time between what's often called the optimistic meta-induction and the pessimistic meta-induction. The op optimistic meta-induction um, um, starts with the historical evidence, which is, as time goes by, we're getting theories which are more and more comprehensive in the phenomena that they can predict, which are more and more accurate, as, as Jim was saying, in, in the way those predictions are made, uh, and the number of decimal places to which these theories come out accurate, and so on and so forth. Um, and we're obviously converging on the truth. The pessimistic meta-induction takes exactly the same data and says, look, every one of these theories has turned out to be wrong um, so far. If you pursue them far enough, we're obviously getting no closer to, uh, to the truth. So if we take the pessimistic view, do we just throw up our hands and say, well, let's ditch the whole enterprise? Or do we say, no, it's, there's some worth here, there's some value here? We go back to a, we, we move from a, an Aristotelian picture of reality to a platonic uh, theory of reality in which the phenomena we see around us, our experiences, or our, our observations, the outcomes of experiences and so forth, are structured in this very sort of subtle, rich, mathematical way. And so Plato said the, you know, the phenomenal world imitates the, the forms, some of which are, are mathematical forms. And I think that's the picture that we're getting. You know, if you look at the stuff of reality, you know, as late as the 19th century, you know, good hard little atoms, like little billiard balls, you know, colliding, and we can sort of understand this as a model of reality. All of that's gone. It's all dissolved into this sort of diaphanous, uh, kind of ghostly mathematics. What is a field? And so particles are not, you know, particles are excitations of fields. Fields are fundamental. You know, what is a field? Can you tell me, you know, what is energy? Uh, in Feynman's uh, lectures on physics, he said, you know, by the way, you should know, physics can say nothing at all about what energy actually is. It can tell you how energy is transformed but from one could, form could, to another. Could classical so physics a, ever say anything at all about what mass was? Yeah, so the question is, I mean, this gets to It's the, this thing that the, slams into you, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. That, and that's what fields are, you know, it's this thing you see when you But there's turn nothing your, actually slamming. I mean, so your idea is that when two billiard balls Well, fly, I don't know what. They're both solid, so I don't they, know what, they're not going to pass but there through was, each other. Other it, things don't slam, they, they right. pass through each other. But, there was, but I, I'm not sure in what sense there was ever less of a mystery about what mass is than there is yeah. now a mystery about what fields are or, or something like that. Yeah, is it just that some of these terms, some of this vocabulary is more familiar and some of it is more unfamiliar? Sure. Um, 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 you know, there is that, but, but there always was a question available to ask, and this is a question which philosophers did ask. What is mass really? Okay, I don't want to be told how it behaves. I don't want to be told how it accelerates under these and these circumstances. I want to be told what it is. Physics has, from the word go, been at a loss yeah. um, um, in the face of such questions. And then right. you hear a lot of physicists will say, well, what the world really consists of is information uh, that um, uh, information right, because everybody knows what that is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then you say, well, and, uh, and uh, physics is how information looks from the outside, and experience is how information feels from the inside. And so, I mean, this is the woolly direction in which it goes. But, um, 
So, okay, that brings us to, to kind of a bigger question that we've touched on um, through our earlier conversation. But this question is, well, what is the point of physics? Um, is the point of physics merely to describe our world, or can we ask more of it? Can we ask it to tell us something about how we should live? Um, David, you want to take the first crack at that one? Well, do I want to take the first crack <laughs> at that one? I mean, I guess, um, um, there are various things one could say. Um, um, some of them are the kinds of things that lots of physicists would say. I think lots of physicists would say, you know, there is uh, something about physics like there is about great philosophical ideas, great artistic accomplishments, um, that you learn these things and the world looks fresh and different. Um, than it did before you learned them. And a chair or a rock um, becomes something, becomes appreciable as something um, immensely complicated in a certain way and delicately balanced and, and, um, and, and deeper and more complicated than you can imagine. And the process of walking across a room, as Eddington famously says, become something absolutely different than it was before. And this is what all great achievements of the imagination do, and, and which physics does as powerfully as anything, is, is make the world constantly look fresh and different and so on and so forth. There's another thing. I think that's what lots of physicists would say. Um, um, I'd have to say, in my own case, over and above that, um, one, of the, one of the sort of intellectual products of physics that means a lot to me is a certain kind of fathomless anxiety. Um, that, that you're presented with a picture of the world which for internal reasons of its own and which for experimental reasons is enormously compelling into which you don't have the slightest idea in a deep sense how to situate a picture of yourself as an agent or as a thinker or as free or as this or as that. And, and I think, um, um, and I think the kind of anxiety that this produces, if you allow yourself to really try to absorb it, sort of doesn't have a bottom and is, uh, uh, and is a really interesting, intellectually interesting place to be. Um, um, there is, you know, in lots of in lots of say existential philosophy, you you're advised to try to experience groundlessness. You're advised to try to experience what Heidegger refers to as anxiety, so on and so forth. Um, um, physics is in all sorts of ways a very deep source of that. Um, for me, it's something, it, it's, a, it's a radically alien idea of what the world is like, a radically unhuman idea of what the world is like. And it's really interesting for that reason. And I think that's interesting as well because so much of the popular coverage of quantum mechanics has tried to draw sort of 
Yeah, exactly the opposite conclusion from it That's um, right. about right. Right. kind of that the importance. Everything you always wanted to be true, right? Um, yes. What's interesting to me is, in many respects, precisely the opposite of that. And, and so, how do we distinguish between what we want quantum mechanics and other kinds of physics to mean, and what they are actually confronting us with? By being honest, you know, and and by thinking hard. <laughs> I thought I'd shut everybody up. <laughs> so um, I wanted to go back to something that Jim had said earlier um, about the role of consciousness um, and the human mind in creating the world um, and understanding the world. And I know that giving this kind of elevated role to consciousness can make some physicists very uncomfortable. Um, can you say a little bit, Jim, about um, what does consciousness mean in this discussion, and is it appropriate that it have this role in creating reality? What I you know, have noticed is, how, you know, as I've already remarked, the, the ease with which physicists talk about consciousness, and it, it would make a philosopher blush. Um, one of the, one of the uh, kind of more uh, recherche uh, ideas that you sometimes hear floated is that um, what does science tell us about the world? Science describes the world up to isomorphism, meaning it, it tells us the structure of the world. The language of science is mathematics. Mathematics, one way of looking at mathematics is as the science of structure. So um, as we, and, and, and you know, fields are a way of describing structure. You know, the, what is energy you know, intrinsically? Science can't tell us about that. But people say, some philosophers uh, of, a, of a rather, um, uh, could romantic uh, kidney, say it can't be all structure. It can't be structure all the way down. There has to be something to carry the structure, to make the, to realize the structure. What might that be? And, and, and one uh, notion is that it might be consciousness. It might be kind of mental stuff. That's the stuff that we know directly. It's self-revealing. And I, you know, I, I, one uh, example of this way of thinking is Andre Linda, who's one of the uh, creators of uh, of inflation theory, the creator of the um, eternal uh, cause, uh, chaotic inflation theory. He says, you know, it, we, it, we, we all begin with conscious experience, my idea of green, my idea of sweet, my idea of pain, and so forth. And then we posit an external world to explain all of the relations among these experiences. And then we say, oh, and the consciousness kind of arises from th that external world. Forgetting that we started with consciousness, that was you know our 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 our, our starting point, our epistemic basis, and so forth. So I, I think I'm, I don't endorse this line of thinking, but it's it's an interesting way of seeing how somebody can take consciousness very seriously as a fundamental ontological ingredient of the world, uh, and still be a serious physicist. Um, uh, but there, you know, there are other, John Archibald Wheeler, whom I mentioned earlier, has an idea of the participatory universe where nothing's real until a conscious observer has emerged to make it real. So the Big Bang happened, and because of quantum mechanics, we know the, the history of the universe was actually a combination or a superposition of all kinds of possible histories. And only when one of those histories resulted in the evolution of conscious observers like ourselves, and we look back on the Big Bang, we make that history real. So this is another rather, uh, um, uh, you know, almost a stoner idea of reality. <laughs> um, but I think it's, you know, physicists are, uh, uh, don't seem to, they, they can talk about this quite unblushingly. And, uh, and philosophers 
are the hard-headed ones who say, no, 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 consciousness is, you know, is, it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's either identical to brain states or it's supervenient on brain states, but the physical world is primary and consciousness is somehow produced by the physical world, which seems, you know, much more hard-headed and down-to-earth, and that's the, that, that's the philosophical view today, by and large. Yeah, it does seem like the tables have turned. Yeah. So, so I know we have a couple more minutes before we open up um, questions to the rest of the audience. Um, so I would like to take a moment just to look at kind of the view from here. Um, how can philosophers and physicists work together to try to sharpen their arguments and deepen their thinking about all of the questions we've been talking about tonight? Um, and let's start with Hans. Um, do you have some thoughts about how the relationship um, between philosophers and physicists can work better and how maybe our education system can encourage that um, at the undergraduate, the graduate level, beyond. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, United States especially, we've been very good at using physics to produce stuff. We, we haven't, as a culture, I think, been so good at taking physics seriously as the story about what's going on in reality. So we have, you know, our heroes in physics are people like Feynman, right? He's great at calculating, but he's the guy who says, shut up and calculate. Don't talk about what's going on. But if, you know, you turn back the clock a little bit and you look at early 20th century European physicists, Einstein, Bohr, the list goes on and on and on. You can just name German, French, British physicists who were really philosophers too. And so what made that possible then for for them, that's not happening for us. I think, for one, there's the pressure to always innovate, but the innovations are always short-term, right? They're not super long-term, not um, from long perspective. The other thing is we, you know, we love our division of labor, right? And we see this in our universities, right? And that's why we have our departments. You know, we have our department of physics and our department of philosophy. And then people's, people become tagged by their department, right? So the fact that David teaches primarily in a philosophy department that makes people put him into a little box, that they would put him into a different box if he was in the physics department. But the fact is he's probably doing basically the same thing that he would be doing if he were teaching in the physics department. So the fact is these boundaries actually are more fluid, should be more fluid than they are. And I think that starts already, especially with undergraduate education. How we can do this practically, you know, certainly some people have the ambition to do things like be double majors. Um, you know, some, some places have possibilities for, say, someone in a physics track to take a class in philosophy of physics, something like that. I think that should be encouraged. I think actually what we see is, is physics improves when there's more conceptual input. And so as long as I think we keep our eye on this, things will get better in the long run. I, I mean, I agree with every word that, that Hans just said. Um, but I think, there's, I think there's also, I mean, just to be a little bit more optimistic about it, in certain areas of the foundations of physics, in, in especially around questions like the measurement problem over, over the last 30 years, it really is true that in a very important and very fruitful way, those disciplinary boundaries have been dissolving. Um, if you go to conferences now about the foundations of physics, certain number of people speaking there will be people who teach in philosophy departments and a certain number of people will be people who teach in physics departments and it's not going to be particularly easy to tell by listening to the talk um, which of those is the case and others are people who work in mathematics departments and so on. Um, so I think we do have 
a small model for how to do that very productively. And I think, as Hans said, that's a model very much worth building on. And yeah, there are, um, um, uh, there are very practical steps like encouraging double majors, encouraging people to take classes in both of these things. I run a master's program uh, at Columbia now um, in Philosophical Foundations of Physics where um, students take half of their courses graduate philosophy courses and the other half graduate physics courses. And uh, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very productive way for people to get educated. And particularly so at moments like this one when physics is facing very foundational questions about how to go forward. So do you feel that the media coverage of kind of the, the um, little arguments between, I don't want to say little arguments, but the arguments between physicists and philosophers, are they overplaying um, the I, differences th between this, the two? Look, there's an interesting history. I think this is a history that's now perceptibly coming to an end, slowly. But um, there was a history throughout much of the 20th century for reasons that we've sort of touched on here of surprising, enormous defensiveness on the part of much of theoretical physics when presented with questions about the foundational structure of the picture of the world that was being presented. Um, there are, I think the story of how this happened is a really complicated story that spans much of the intellectual history of the 20th century. You know, I think you can relate it to McCarthyism. I think you can relate it to the rise of literary modernism. I, I think there are all kinds of things you can say about this story. Um, um, and it's not a story that's been told remotely well by anyone, not that I'm in a position to tell it. Um, but there was a long, long history um, in which Einstein played a central role and so on of enormous, and as I say, for such smart people, really surprising defensiveness uh, about considering foundational questions. I think that is characteristic of a certain number of generations of theoretical physicists who dominated the 20th century. And, you know, one of the chief engines of intellectual progress in the world in all areas is that people die, you know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that's, you know, that, you know, that sort of thing is going on now. I think younger physicists um, um, find these questions much more, uh, a much more natural extension of what they're doing than certain older generations of physicists did. And I think this is something, this kind of conflict and this kind of defensiveness on the part of theoretical physics is something that's on the decline, but you get flare-ups of it every now and then, like, uh, uh, like Jim was referring to and, and like you were referring to. I'm much more pessimistic. I, I, <laughs> I, we were, David and I were at a conference in the Canary Islands uh, a couple of years ago together, meant to bring philosophers and physics together. And every day at the conference, all of the physicists would sit on one side of the floor <laughs> and philosophers sit on the other eye. Every day. And, uh, and, and, the, and physicists think that they do, I mean, the ones who admit that there are philosophical problems feel that they 
know how to do it better than philosophers do. And, and this is not, for example, what Brian Greene thinks. Yeah, he's yeah, he's he's exceptional. The, the, uh, there are few exceptions, I would say. But, but he's uh, a but he's a he's a central figure in the way physics is being presented to the general public. That's true. Yeah. Um, Anyway. Another Sean, Sean Carroll in this very right, room. Right, I, after right. the banquet, I was having an argument with Sean Carroll, who's a, a, a young, youngish physicist who's interested in philosophical problems at Caltech, over the uh, you know, bearing uh, candidates for interpreting quantum mechanics. And as we were having this chat, um, Lisa Randall, who's a, a physicist uh, at uh, Harvard, walked by and she sort of hissed. She said, you're wasting your breath. <laughs> uh, and, she, and she meant it. Um, so uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm glad to hear about this new generation of uh, philosophically <laughs> cultivated physicists. <laughs> and I, I think it's encouraging to hear as well, because I think most young physics students are motivated to begin their study of physics by these very deep questions. There may be a few that begin physics because they have a love of calculation, but I think most really want <laughs> yeah. to dive well, into these questions. Right. And it seems like maybe somewhere along the way that gets lost or gets suppressed. Right. Um, so it's, it's good to hear that there's a future for that kind of inquiry. And then there were some questions from the audience. First, someone asked about the theory of alternate universes, which has always bothered him. If, he asked... The idea is that there are parallel universes to ours with which we can't interact in any way. Who cares? What use would that be? So in, in physics, you'd, I don't think the goal is just to literally describe what you see in front of you, right? What you want to do is you want to give a framework that systematizes all the stuff, right? So it sort of keeps things hanging together. And so I think that the whole point of the, the many universes thing is it's not that someone's just sort of telling a story about what they see in front of them. They're actually coming up with a framework and the framework does have predictive power about our universe, and then it has as sort of an upshot, a side consequence, that there are these other universes. And I think to, to go back to the theory and say, well, I'm just going to then forget those other universes, is to then butcher the theory. And so it, it, it takes out a virtue of the theory that was there in the first place, this sort of elegant systematization. So that, that, I think, is at least a methodological reason to take them seriously. Mm -hmm. Next. A young physicist in the audience talked about how he entered graduate school really excited about the possibilities of string theory. And he's now disappointed, as he feels a lot of his generation are, that it hasn't yielded as many solutions as it was supposed to, such as a solution to something called the measurement problem, which has to do with the inability to directly observe some fundamental functions of quantum mechanics. What do you think, he asked the panel, about the future of string theory? I mean, I remember in the early days of string theory, people really did say, of course it's going to solve the measurement problem. You know, it was presumably going to cure cancer. I mean, it was, it was uh, um, um, so people were sort of wildly optimistic with very, very few grounds. So I, I think it depends what the, I, I, you know, string theory is very difficult, very technically difficult. Um, if it, if it makes progress and if some of it pans out, it's going to be, in all sorts of foundational ways, an extraordinary event for physics, I think. Um, you know, the fact that it's gone very slow so far is 
personally difficult, is historically difficult for lots of people. I don't think that's reason to believe it won't, uh, it won't pan out. It might or it might not. If it does, I think it'll have enormously profound consequences. But I don't think any reason, any compelling reason has ever been presented to think that, for example, it'll solve the measurement problem in, in quantum mechanics. Um, there may, you know, the way so far that progress has been made um, with the measurement problem has been thinking about much, much simpler versions of quantum mechanics than that, essentially by thinking about first quantized um, non-relativistic quantum mechanics. And the assumption has been that if we learn how to solve that problem in that domain, whatever it is we learn, we can have hopes will at least be very useful um, in extending solution, in constructing solutions to the measurement problem for relativistic quantum field theories, for, for quantum string theories, for quantum brain theories, um, um, so on and so forth. Um, um, that's turned out sometimes to be true and, and sometimes <coughs> to be less true. Some of the solutions that have been discovered for the measurement problem have turned out to be easily translatable uh, to quantum theories in general. Some of them, some of them, uh, that turns out to be more difficult. But yeah, I, I haven't, um, um, I think the way that, the, I think enormous progress has been made in understanding the measurement problem over the past 30 years or so. But none of that has come from from anything like string theory. That's not to say that string theory won't have all sorts of other very profound implications. But if you take, there are two very fundamental problems um, that, that I think one can put one's finger on at the intersection between physics and philosophy. One is the measurement problem in quantum mechanics. The other is the problem of the direction of time. I think it's fair to say that there's been no indication at all that string theory is likely to help us with either one of those, right? And then someone asked them to go into more detail about time. Relativity, he said, seems to throw the idea of measurable linear time right out the window. So is time something real and measurable? Or is it an illusion we've constructed? And is that a question worth asking? I, I definitely think it's a question worth asking. I mean, I think, you know, I think one way to read um, the history of space-time theories in the early 20th century with Einstein is we finally had physics actually making a big dent in something that philosophers had thought was their ter territory alone. That is what, is, what is, what are space and time? People had always thought, you know, what happens in space and time, that's for physics, but philosophers kind of a priori know what space and time are like, but then Einstein comes along and says, no, um, physics is going to tell you, I've got some equations. And I think this would be even more wonderful if, you know, the next hundred years of physics, we actually understand time better, why it does feel like it goes in one direction, and so on. So I think it's definitely a good question to ask, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with the claim that, that with the advent of relativity, the claim that it was measurable went out the window, or the claim, it's certainly not the case that the claim that it could be treated quantitatively um, um, went out the window. But it became a more a more complicated thing than we had suspected. And I agree, I mean, one of the things that got me excited about physics when I was young was exactly what Hans was just alluding to. That there was this problem that, that about which it seemed like you could give a straightforward argument 
that scientific methods of investigation weren't going to shed any light on it. It was a sort of precondition of scientific investigation. Science was there to investigate, as Hans said, how things moved around within space and time. It was impossible to see how empirical methods were going to shed any light on what these things were themselves. And Einstein was so smart and so clever um, that he managed to see how to, even from things you do within its framework, trick it into revealing things about itself that you wouldn't have suspected. And, and that's really paradigmatic of the sort of glories of what, of what science can do. And it's certainly one of the important things that got me excited about it when I was in, when I was in junior high school. I remember it very well. Next, someone asked, in all this discussion of what we're capable of observing, what is the proper role of information, which is to say quantifiable data, in theoretical physics? Well, what one view is that it has no proper role at all. Whenever there's a reference to, to, to information or measurement or in a fundamental theory, that's a sign that there's something corrupt and, and rotten with the theory. That's a view. Now, should we, should we pause for a moment to say what we're talking about when we talk about information? Information is a difference that makes a difference. That's about, <laughs> that's the, the most abstract definition you can give of, of information. Uh, can you give me an example? <laughs> uh, if you, you know, flip the, uh, spin, the spin of a qubit, uh, that can... Uh, incorporate one bit of information, um, because uh, depending on how it's part of a larger system. But it's all, you know, so information theory was something that emerged uh, in the 1940s or 1950s, and um, it's uh, it, it's not about information and in the kind of sense of uh, the rich sense that we think of it, uh, and that's not the sense that's used in physics. Uh, just to give you an idea of how confusing this is, when the uh, who was the father of information theory, Pitts. Uh, Shannon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and Shannon was talking to um, uh, uh, von Neumann, and he said, you know, what should I call this quantity in my information theory? And von Neumann said, call it entropy, because if you call it, and nobody really knows what entropy is, and if you call it entropy, no one will ever challenge you on it. <laughs> anyway. uh, and finally, what happens when a theory that's purely philosophical conflicts with a scientific theory? Is there ever a time when we can give credence to philosophy over science? Um, you can find a lot of people throughout the history of philosophy saying that, um, well, I, yeah, saying, you know, well, I'm, I'm not really sure how to say this. Um, it was a very, very fundamental expectation with which we made our way about in the world that things that happen over here can only affect in a direct and unmediated way things that are right next to them, both in space and in time. And in cases where something over here affects something over here, you have an expectation that with, that, that with sufficient investigation and sufficient imagination, you're going to be able to find a, a continuous and unbroken chain of mediating causes and effects and causes and effects and causes and effects stretching all the way from here to there. It is 
it is, it's probably not an exaggeration to say that it's one of the big surprises in the entire history of natural science, um, that this turns out not to be true. Um, um, that we now know of, uh, uh, of very concrete uh, examples that are very carefully experimentally studied. Not only are these cases where we haven't been able to detect um, uh, an influence going, you know, propagating continuously from here to there, but we have a proof due to Bell that, that there isn't a local model of propagation of that kind that could possibly account for the actual behaviors of these two systems that we see. So that's been a huge surprise. Now, I don't know what, I don't know what an example of a metaphysical argument would be to the effect that the world has to be local, um, that, that is, has to be other than that. Um, I, I mean, if there was such an argument, this would be bad news for such an argument. But it was certainly something much discussed by metaphysics that, that this seemed to be the way the world was. And, and this, is a, this is an expectation about the way the world is that is hardwired in an inestimably deep way into the way we think about the world. This is not a result of our education. This is a result of much deeper hardwiring than this. It's not just modern, you know, it, it, it's not just post-enlightenment scientists who believed in locality. Cavemen believed in locality. Fish believe in locality. <laughs> Bacteria believe in locality. Okay, um, um, so this was a very, very deep conviction um, about the way the world is, and, and this was overturned. But I'm not sure that this is an example. It, I, I'm not aware of there ever having been what claimed to be an a priori argument um, for locality, and if there was. Um, and, and I guess I would say this generally about such conflicts, to the extent that there are conflicts between what people take themselves to have a priori arguments for and what's revealed by empirical investigation, gee, I guess the whole point of the scientific revolution and the enlightenment and so on is that's bad news for the metaphysics, um, not bad news for the science. You, you can always, I mean, just to t take another example, um, uh, Kant thought that the that uh, space was necessarily Euclidean right. in its geometry. Uh, with Einstein, we know that's not the case. But suppose you really want to your your uh, your your metaphysical convictions are very uh, uh, unyielding, and you want to stick with Euclidean uh, geometry. You can you can always introduce universal forces that will explain everything that I, the Einstein theory does in a Euclidean space. So there's a certain amount of uh, a flexibility in uh, if you can you can stick to your metaphysical principles and come up with more and more complicated theories that will explain how things work in accordance with those principles and eventually it might come down to a pragmatic choice the Einstein uh, theory of general general uh, theory of relativity is so is so elegant and simple that the alternatives that posit Euclidean space with the universal forces aren't even in the running so. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, to some extent, reality isn't dictating our decisions. It's uh, considerations of simplicity and elegance and so forth, which, which raises the question, is there a fact of the matter as to how the, the geometry of space really is? And I would say, perhaps not.
Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Jennifer Costley. It presented a conversation called Where Do Physics and Philosophy Intersect? held at the Academy on Monday, April 15th, 2016. The moderator was Kate Becker, and the panelists were Dr. David Z. Albert of Columbia University, Dr. Hans Halverson of Princeton University, and Jim Holt. Find out more about the Physics of Everything series, including how you can attend upcoming events at www.nyas.org slash physicsofeverything. Both this podcast and the event it presented were made possible with the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation. For more information about this and other Academy events, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter and the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.